Chapter 21 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Silvestre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winterout. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Silvestre. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 21 Lord Beltham's Murderer. It was on the point of midnight, and absolute silence reigned throughout the house. But Lady Beltham had not gone to bed. Although she had remained in the great hall where she did her work, she had been unable to settle down to any occupation. She had read a little, and begun a letter, got up and sat down, and finally, beginning to feel chilly, she had drawn an easy chair up to the hearth, where a log was just burning out, and stretching out her slippers to the warmth had fallen into a waking dream. A sound caught her ear, and she sat upright. At first she thought it was some trick of the imagination, but in another minute the noise grew louder. There was the hurrying of feet and voices, muffled at first, but rapidly becoming louder, and at last a regular uproar, doors banging, glass breaking, and shouts from all parts of the house. Lady Beltham jumped up, nervous and trembling. She was just going to the window when she heard a shot, and stopped dead where she stood. Then she rushed out into the vestibule. Help! she screamed. What on earth is the matter? And remembering the girls for whom she had assumed responsibility, she called out anxiously for them. Lisbeth, Therese, Susanna, come to me! Doors upstairs were flung open, and with their hair streaming over their nightdresses, Therese and Susanna rushed downstairs and crouched by her side, stifling moans of terror. Lisbeth! Where is Lisbeth? Lady Beltham asked sharply. At the same moment she appeared, her face distorted with fright. Oh, Lady Beltham, it is dreadful. There's a man, a burglar in the garden, and Walter is throttling him, and they're fighting dreadfully. They'll kill one another. Silbertown, the majordomo, came rushing in just then. Seeing the three girls in their nightdresses, he made as if to draw back, but Lady Beltham called him in and demanded explanations. We had just finished our rounds, he answered breathlessly, when we caught sight of a man hiding in the shadows, a thief probably. When we shouted in, he ran away, but we ran after him and seized him. He resisted, and there was a fight. But we have got him, and the police will take him away in a few minutes. Lady Beltham listened, with jaw set and hands clenched. A thief, she said, controlling her emotion. How do you know he is a thief? Well, stammered the majordomo, he is very poorly dressed, and besides, what was he doing in the garden? Lady Beltham was recovering her calm. What excuse did he give for being there? she asked coldly. We didn't give him time to invent one, said the majordomo. We collared him almost as soon as we saw him. And you know, madam, how tremendously powerful Walter is. Walter gave him all he deserved. And the majordomo clenched his fists and made an expressive exhibition of the porter's reception of the stranger. Lisbeth was still overcome by what she had seen. Oh, the blood, she murmured hysterically. It was streaming. Lady Beltham spoke angrily to the majordomo. I hate brutality. Is the man seriously hurt? I hope not. You ought to have questioned me before assaulting him. No one in my house has a right to use violence. Whom so smites with the sword shall perish by the sword. The majordomo heard her in silent astonishment. It was not at all what he expected to be told, in view of all the circumstances. Lady Beltham went on more gently. I suppose I shall have to apologize to this man 
for your wrong and thoughtless behavior. Apologize, exclaimed Silberdown in amazement. Surely your ladyship will not do that. One must not shrink from humiliation when one has been in the wrong, said Lady Beltham, in the pulpit manner she affected. Tell Walter to come to me. A few minutes later the porter, a muscular giant of a man, came into the room and made a clumsy bow. How is it possible for anyone to get into the house at this time of night? his mistress inquired coldly. Walter dropped his eyes and raised his cap nervously. I hope your ladyship will forgive me. I caught the fellow, and as he was struggling I hit him. Then two of the footmen came, and they are looking after him in the kitchen. Has he given any explanation of his presence here since you assaulted him? At which I am very angry, said Lady Beltham. He hasn't said anything, at, at least. Well, I don't like to tell you. Please do like, said Lady Beltham irritably. Well, Walter replied, overcoming his nervousness with an effort. He says your ladyship is well known for your charity to everybody, and, and he wants to see you. There was a moment's pause. I shall see him, said Lady Beltham at last, in a half-stifled voice. Will your ladyship allow me to point out the danger of doing any such thing? Silbertown exclaimed. Very likely the man is a lunatic, or it may be a trick. Lord Beltham was murdered, and perhaps... Lady Beltham looked intently at the major-domo, seemingly trying to read his thoughts. Then she answered slowly, I will see him. I will be more pitiful than you. And as the major-domo and the porter made a gesture of futile protest, she added peremptorily, I have given my orders. Kindly obey. When the two men had reluctantly left the room, Lady Beltham turned to the three girls. You had better leave me, darling, she said, kindly but firmly. Run away. Excitement is bad for you. Go back to bed. No, I assure you I will be in no danger whatever. And for a few minutes she was left alone. Speak, said Lady Beltham in a toneless voice. The major-domo and the porter had led in and placed before her a man with unkempt hair and ragged beard. He was dressed entirely in black, and his face was tired and haggard. Lady Beltham, ghastly pale, was leaning for support against the back of an armchair. The man did not raise his eyes to her. "'I will not speak unless we are alone,' he answered dully. "'Alone?' said Lady Beltham, fighting down her emotion. "'Then is it something serious you have to tell me?' "'If you know anything of people in misfortune, madam,' the man answered gently, you know that they do not like to humiliate themselves before before those who cannot understand. And he nodded toward the major-domo and the porter. I do know something of misfortune, Lady Beltham replied in firmer tones, and I will hear you alone. She looked at her two servants. Leave us, please. The major-domo started. Leave you alone with him? It's madness! And as Lady Beltham merely looked at him in haughty surprise, he began to withdraw in confusion, but still protesting, It's, it's, your ladyship has no idea what this fellow wants. Do, please. But Lady Beltham curtly cut him short. That is enough. A heavy velvet curtain fell over the closing door, and in the room that was dimly lighted by a small electric lamp, Lady Beltham was alone with the strange individual to whom she had so readily, so oddly consented to accord a private interview. She followed her servants to the door and locked it after them. 
Then, with a sudden movement, she sprang towards the man, who was standing motionless in the middle of the room, following her with his eyes, and flung herself into his arms. "'Oh, Gurn, my darling, my darling!' she cried. "'I love you, I love you, darling!' She looked up at him and saw blood upon his forehead. "'Good God! The brutes have hurt you! What pain you must be in! Give me your eyes, your lips!' With kisses from her own lips, she staunched the blood that was trickling down his cheeks, and with her fingers she smoothed his hair. "'I am so happy,' she murmured, and broke off again. "'But are you mad? Why, why come here like this and let yourself be caught and tortured so?' Moodily Gurn answered, returning kiss for kiss. "'Time has been so long without you, and this evening I was prowling round and saw a light. I thought that everyone would be asleep, except you, of course.' and so I came straight to you, over walls and gates, drawn to you like a moth to a candle, and that is all. With shining eyes and heaving breast, Lady Beltham clung to her lover. I love you so. How brave you are. Yes, I am wholly, only yours. But this is madness. You might be arrested and given up to no one knows what horror without my knowing. Gurn seemed to be hypnotized by the fierce and passionate love of this great lady. I never gave that a thought, he murmured. I only thought of you. Silence fell upon these tragic lovers, as they stood reading love in one another's eyes, and recalling memories common to both, utterly unlike as they were to outward seeming, yet linked by the strongest bond of all, the bond of love. What happy hours we lived together out there, Lady Beltham whispered. Her thoughts had wandered to the far Transvaal, and the battlefield where first she had set eyes on Gurn, sergeant of artillery with powder-blackened face, and then to the homeward voyage on the mighty steamer that bore them across the blue sea toward the dull white cliffs of England. Gurn's thoughts followed hers. Out there, yes, and then on that vast ocean, on the ship homeward bound, the quiet and peace of it all, and our meetings every day, our long, long talks and longer silences, in the clear starlight of those tropical skies, we were learning to know each other. We were learning to love each other, she said. And then London, and Paris, and all the fever of life threatening our love. But that is the strongest thing in the world, and, do you remember? Oh, the ecstasy of it all. But do you remember, too, what you did for me, through me, thirteen months ago? She had risen, and with white lips and haggard eyes held Gurn's hands within her own in an even tighter grip. Emotion choked her further utterance. Yes, I remember, Gurn went on slowly. It was in our little room in the Rue Le Vert, and I was on my knees beside you when the door opened quietly, and there stood Lord Beltham, mad with rage and jealousy. I don't know what happened then, Lady Beltham whispered in a hopeless undertone, drooping her head again. I do, muttered Gurn. His eyes sought you, and a pistol was pointed at your heart. He would have fired, but I sprang and struck him down, and then I strangled him. Lady Beltham's eyes were fixed on the man's hands that she still held between her own. And I saw the muscles in these hands swell up beneath the skin as they tightened on his throat. I killed him, groaned the man. But Lady Beltham, swept by a surge of passion, sprang up and sought his lips. Oh, Gurn, she sobbed, my darling. Listen, said Gurn harshly after a pause of anxious silence. I had to see you tonight, for who knows if tomorrow... Lady Beltham shrank at the words, but Gurn went on unheeding. The police are after me. 
Of course, I have made myself almost unrecognizable, but twice just lately I have been very nearly caught. Do you think the police have any accurate idea of what happened? Lady Beltham asked abruptly. No, said Gurn after a moment's hesitation. They think I killed him with the mallet. They have not found out that I had to strangle him. As far as I know, they found no marks of my hands on his throat. At all events, they could not have been clear, for the collar, you understand. The man spoke of his crime without the least sign of remorse or repugnance now. His only dread was lest he should be caught. But nonetheless, they have identified me. That detective Juve is very clever. We did not have enough presence of mind, Lady Beltham said despairingly. We ought to have led them to suspect someone else, have made them think that it was, say, Fantomas. Not that, said Gurn nervously. Don't talk about Fantomas. We did all we could. But the main thing now is that I should escape them. I had better get away, across the Channel, across the Atlantic, anywhere. But would you come too? Lady Beltham did not hesitate. She flung her arms around the neck of the man who had murdered her own husband, and yielded to a paroxysm of wild passion. You know that I am yours wherever you may go. Shall it be tomorrow? We can meet, you know where, and arrange everything for your flight. My flight? said Gurn, with reproachful emphasis on the pronoun. For our flight, she replied, and Gurn smiled again. Then that is settled, he said. I have seen you, and I am happy. Good-bye. He made a step towards the door, but Lady Beltham stayed him gently. Wait, she said. Walter shall let you out of the house. Do not say anything. I will explain. I will invent some story to satisfy the servants as to your coming here, and also to justify your being allowed to go. They clung to one another in a parting caress. Lady Beltham tore herself away. Till tomorrow, she whispered. She stole to the door and unlocked it noiselessly, then crossed the room and rang the bell placed near the fireplace. Resuming her impassive mask and the haughty air and attitude of cold indifference that were in such utter contrast to her real character, she waited, while Gurn stood upright and still in the middle of the room. Walter the porter came in. "'Take that man to the door and let no harm be done to him,' said Lady Beltham proudly and authoritatively. "'He is free.' Without a word or sign or glance, Gurn went out of the room, and Walter followed behind him to obey his mistress's command." Once more alone in the great hall, Lady Beltham waited nervously to hear the sound of the park gate closing behind Gurn. She did not dare go on to the balcony to follow her departing lover with her eyes. So, shaken by her recent emotions, she stood waiting and listening in an agony to know that he was safe. Then of a sudden, the noise that she had heard an hour before broke on her ears again, the noise of hurrying feet and broken shouts, and words, vague at first, but rapidly growing clearer, she crouched forward listening, filled with a horrible fear, her hand laid upon her scarcely beating heart. "'There he is! Hold him!' someone shouted. "'That's him, all right. Look out, constable!' "'This way, inspector. Yes, it's him. It's Gurn. Ah, would you?' Paler than death, Lady Beltham cowered down upon a sofa. "'Good God! Good God!' she moaned. "'What are they doing to him?' The uproar in the garden decreased then voices sounded in the corridor, Silvertown's exclamations rising above the frightened cries of the three young girls. Gurn! Arrested! The man who murdered Lord Beltham! Lisbeth called out in anxious terror. But Lady Beltham! 
Dear God, perhaps he has murdered her too. The door was flung open, and the girls rushed in. Lady Beltham, by a tremendous effort of will, had risen to her feet, and was standing by the end of the sofa. Lady Beltham, alive! Yes, yes! And Therese and Lisbeth and Susanna rushed sobbing to her and smothered her with caresses. But the agonized woman motioned them away. With hard eyes and set mouth, she moved toward the window, straining her ears to listen. From the park outside, Gurn's voice rang distinctly. The lover wished to let his mistress know what had happened, and to take a last farewell. I am caught, I am caught, yes, I am Gurn, and I am caught. The fatal words were still ringing in Lady Beltham's ears when the Major Domo, Silbertown, came bursting into the room, with radiant face and shining eyes and smiling lips, and hurried to his mistress. I thought as much, he exclaimed excitedly. It was the villain, all right. I recognized him from the description, in spite of his beard. I informed the police. As a matter of fact, they have been watching for the last two days. Just fancy, your ladyship, a detective was shadowing Gurn, and when he was going out of the house, I gave him the signal. Lady Beltham stared at the major-domo in mute horror. Yes, she muttered, on the point of swooning. I pointed him out to the police, and it's thanks to me, your ladyship, that Gurn, the murderer, has been arrested at last. For just another moment, Lady Beltham stared at the man who gave her those appalling tidings, seemed to strive to utter something, then fell prone to the floor unconscious. The major-domo and the girl sprang to her side to lavish attentions upon her. At that moment, the door was pushed a little way open, and the figure of Juve appeared. May I come in? said he. End of chapter 21 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com